Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Thank you, ladies. Uh, Thank you, Daniel, for filling in this morning. Aaron and his family are off on vacation, so thank you for filling in uh, for him. And I will also add to what Jake said earlier about the um, Weekend United. Uh, That was also the time when they helped. There were other volunteers as well, but they helped yesterday to distribute your bags of blessings that you guys brought in. Uh, And so they gave out uh, probably nearly 100 Thanksgiving meals to various families yesterday, thanks to your generosity and their volunteer time yesterday. We are continuing our series, so be finding John chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 30 this morning. It is, of course, Thanksgiving week, as you well know, and yet I am not preaching a traditional Thanksgiving sermon. However, what I am talking about today ought to be something high on your Thanksgiving list. That is, this is something that every believer ought to be thankful for. In fact, I would say that is an understatement because what we're talking about this morning ought to be at the very top of your Thanksgiving list. Now, if you happen to be one of those who does those social media posts in uh, November of uh, day after day of something you're thankful for, What we're talking about this morning ought to be the pinnacle of your social media posts. But before we get there, let's talk about the opposite. All of us are familiar with losing something, probably something of value. Now, keep in mind, I wrote this on Thursday. This has nothing to do with what happened last night. I'm simply saying all of us are familiar with losing something as a part of our lives. I told you a couple of months back or longer than that at this point that I lost my wedding ring nearly two years ago. After 25 years at that time of marriage, I lost my wedding ring. I have, of course, replaced it, but I still occasionally look somewhere for it, hoping that somehow it is somewhere that I overlooked. So even after two years, I still occasionally take some time and look for it. We lose our car keys, our cell phones. That's why we're glad we have those apps on there, the Find My Phone app, so we can find it when we lose it, or at least we can call it and hear where it's ringing if we don't happen to have it on vibrate. We lose people we love, either through the breakup of marriages or friendships or through death, all of which cause great pain. We lose our minds at some times perhaps more frequently than we care to admit. And as a result of all of this loss in life, we are often fearful of losing what we have and have not yet lost. And so sometimes we become paranoid that we're going to lose something of value, especially if we've lost it in the past. Like immediately after I replaced my ring, I was afraid that I was going to lose it again. And I became overly conscious of that. And so we go to great lengths to try and secure what we don't yet have lost or what we haven't yet lost, spending large sums of money for security to keep what we have, or purchasing insurance on our valuables so that if we do happen to lose it, then someone else can pay to replace it. Frankly, the potential to lose or the reality of losing someone or something 
is simply a part of our lives, all that we know. And so we have a hard time believing that there's anything in life that is so secure that it absolutely is impossible to lose. And yet that is exactly what we are talking about this morning. Something that as a believer you and I possess, that it is absolutely impossible for any of us to lose it. And that's why it ought to be at the top of your Thanksgiving list. We are, of course, talking about our salvation, the very thing we claim is the most important element of our life, the most important decision we've ever made, the most valuable possession that we have in our lives is the very possession that it is impossible to lose. So we are talking this morning about the fact of eternal security. That once we have salvation, we cannot lose it. Now, we Baptists tend to like the phrase, once saved, always saved. There are more theological ways to put that. We can talk about the perseverance of the saints, or I prefer to use the term, the preservation of the saints. And I like that term better, as I will explain as we move forward. I realize that of all the things we've been talking about in this series called Divine Design, this might be the one that's a bit suspect. Not that it's not true, but I simply mean you might think to yourself, well, why did he include that one in this series? Because all of the other things have been something that God has said we are. This is who you are. Now, this is not so much the case with this one. However, this is such an issue that so many people struggle with, and it certainly is a large part of who we are in Christ that I felt compelled to include it in this series. Because even while some people might acknowledge that it's true, they might still struggle with it on a practical basis. They might say readily to you, oh yes, I believe in one saved, always saved. But at the same time, they have doubts and they become discouraged, and they wonder perhaps if they are the exception, and they have lost their salvation. When we don't understand this doctrine, when we misunderstand it and misapply it, it can be very dangerous and damaging to our faith. So we are talking this morning about the fact that if you are a believer, you are firmly held. I've worded it that way for a reason. I want you to understand that it is God who is holding you. It is not you who are holding God. So you and I as believers are firmly held. And we're going to see that from John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. John 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I want to start this morning by talking about the fact 
that theologically and practically the stakes are high. That is, this is an important topic that we need to rightly understand. Now, you'll notice that we are given a specific setting in which this dialogue actually took place. It says in that first verse we read that this was the Feast of Dedication and it was winter. The Feast of Dedication is also known today as Hanukkah. Hanukkah starts on the 25th day of the Hebrew month of Kislev, which usually corresponds to sometime in our December. This year, it's going to start on December 18th. It commemorates what happened many, many years ago. In 170 BC, Syrian king Antiochus Epiphany conquered Jerusalem and desecrated the temple with a pagan altar. Some of the Jews revolted under an old priest by the name of Matthias and his five sons. They collectively became known as the Maccabees, and they began to revolt, and they began a sort of guerrilla warfare style of battle against the Syrians, and this went on for several years. Eventually, in 164 BC, they reclaimed the temple. They were successful in their fighting, and they reclaimed the temple. They removed the idols, rededicated the temple, and that's why it's called Hanukkah. Hanukkah means a, a rededication. It's also called the Festival of Lights because when the temple was rededicated, the Jews wanted to light the menorah. The menorah is the candelabra that commemorates the eternal covenant between God and the Jews. And according to tradition, they had only enough oil to last for one day in that candelabra, and there was not any other oil available. It would take eight days to get more oil, but miraculously, according to tradition, the small supply of oil was able to last for eight days, and that is why the celebration remains for eight days. So that's the festival that's going on during this setting in the temple, and they approach Jesus with a, with a command, really. They want Jesus to come clean. Look at verse 24. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, plainly. Notice they're blaming him for their lack of belief. The reason that we don't believe is because you've not told us clearly enough. If you would just be straight with us, then we would believe. But of course, Jesus gives them another answer. Jesus responds and tells them his sheep know him and his sheep follow him. And the reason that they don't believe is because they are not his sheep. I mean, after all, he's done plenty already. He's taught them repeatedly. He has performed miracle after miracle, including in the previous chapter in John 9, the miracle of Jesus healing the man who had been, who had been born blind. And in chapter 11, we're going to see that he raises Lazarus from the dead. But none of this leads them to believe because the truth is they didn't really want to believe and because they were not his sheep. Look at the wording in verse 26. In verse 26, Jesus says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And he goes on to say, say that my sheep hear me and they follow me. Now, I want you to keep that in mind. Because as we move forward, we're going to come back to that. My sheep hear me and they follow me. So as we talk about being firmly held, we're going to come back to that. But then notice what they do in verse 32. Now, we didn't read this verse, but you've still got your Bible open. I'm sorry, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They weren't looking for more evidence to believe. 
They were looking for Jesus to plainly tell them that he was the Christ so that they could charge him with blasphemy and stone him for such a crime. So in the midst of all of this that is going on, we have this whole chapter, chapter 10 of John's gospel that is dealing with the shepherd and the sheep picture and the specifics that we are looking at this morning, that Jesus doesn't lose any of his sheep. They belong to him forever. Now, remember I told you a couple of weeks ago, the very last point of the sermon two weeks ago, that we are purchased by God. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. And God does not take anything back. Unlike my wife, who takes back more than she probably should of things she purchases. She's not in this service, so I can say that. God doesn't take anything back. He has purchased us with the blood of his son, and he does not take that back. So let me give you some reasons why this is so important. Again, not just theologically, but practically, so that you will agree with me that the stakes are high. Because when we rightly understand that we are firmly held by God, it serves as a tremendous assurance for our Christian life. On the other hand, if we don't rightly believe that, then it can foster much doubt, confusion, and ultimately great spiritual angst. And through my years of ministry, I have talked to many people that are dealing with just that because they do not understand what it means to be firmly held by God. The first is the most obvious and what I've already been alluding to, and that is the assurance of our salvation. If we are not firmly held, then we can only hope that we're saved. If we are not firmly held, then we can only pray that God will keep us. If we are not firmly held, then we can only try the best and hope that it's good enough in the end. Something that describes the way most people do, in fact, view salvation. But you know as well as I do that there are many verses in the Bible that speak about, number one, do not worry about anything. Do not be anxious for anything. There are multiple verses that tell us that we have no reason to be anxious. Instead, we have every reason to be filled with peace, the peace that Jesus says passes all of our understanding. The Bible also talks about Christians being filled with joy and rejoicing in and through all circumstances. Many of these verses and these claims come from the lips of Jesus. And I know that you would agree with me that the Bible is so full of those kinds of statements that I don't even need to show you where they are or quote them. Repeatedly, we are told, do not worry and have peace and to have joy in everything. But none of these things are possible if we are not firmly held by God. If it's possible for you to lose your salvation, then let me just be honest and say you ought to be worried. You ought to be anxious. You can't possibly be filled with peace. It is only as we have eternal security that we can enjoy these things. Secondly, the stakes are high because the extent of God's forgiveness is at stake. You see, most anyone who believes that you can somehow lose your salvation believes that it's possible because you've done something to negate the salvation of God, some act of sin, some act of rebellion. They're afraid they've done something or said something that God is simply not willing to forgive. And so whatever that is, they label it as the unpardonable sin, something we talked about a few weeks ago, and they then conclude that it is impossible for them to be forgiven. But let me ask you this, if there is some sin that you can commit after becoming a believer, 
that would cause you, in fact, to no longer be a believer, then which of your sins are forgiven? I mean, if all of your sins are not forgiven because you might possibly commit one that will lead to you losing your salvation, then which sins did Jesus die for and which sins did Jesus atone? Some people subtly believe that God does atone for most of our sins, but we need to somehow participate. We need to help God by atoning for some other of our sins. We have to do our part and allow him to do his. We have to pay our penance, if you will. But this is work salvation, not biblical salvation by grace. So if all of our sins are not forgiven, and we must somehow contribute to the atonement of Christ, then salvation is no longer by grace through faith, and all of that is lost. Or think about the love of God. We talk about the love of God as being eternal and unconditional. But that too hinges upon the fact that we are firmly held. After all, again, if there is something that you can do for which God would cast you off and no longer hold you and love you and save you, again, after you've been saved, then certainly that can't qualify as eternal and unconditional love. Now, we are very good at conditional love. I will love you if you love me in return. I will love you if you do what, you, what I ask you to do. But that's not the kind of love we see in Scripture from God. God loves us eternally and unconditionally, and therefore, there's nothing we can do for which he is going to cast us off. Now, I could talk about many other reasons about why the stakes are so high, but I do need to move on at this point. Hopefully, you've heard enough to give you the, at least the conclusion at this point that indeed the stakes are high. This is not just a secondary doctrine. This is not just something that's really unimportant. The fact of the matter is salvation itself and the very character of God hinges upon the fact that we are firmly held in our salvation. And if we deny that, then those things crumble as well. And we certainly can't allow that to happen. So hopefully we are in agreement that their stakes are high, but secondly, we must acknowledge that the fallacies are broad. And what I mean by that is, even though we might say we understand this doctrine, there are a lot of misconceptions, there is a lot of misunderstanding about it, what it means and how it applies, and therefore there are a lot of incorrect conclusions that lead to damage in spiritual lives fallacies that people think are true, but ultimately are not. I was at the Tennessee Baptist Convention this week. It was held in Memphis uh, at Bellevue Baptist Church, a church that uh, is very large. I attended there when I was in seminary, so I was a member there for about five years. My wife was uh, raised there, and it was the church in which we were married. Uh, they run, or at least they did at that time, about five to 6,000 people on a Sunday morning. And I know that because I was one of the guys, me and another guy, actually counted the numbers in the worship service every Sunday. And we turned those numbers in to the executive pastor of the church. But there was another pastor in the church at that time who happened to be the college pastor. He since moved on. Even while I was there, he left. And he became a pastor in Florida. He remains there. He is a pastor of a very large church in Florida. Anyway, this other pastor and I, a lot of people thought we looked alike. In fact, barely a Sunday went by that someone didn't come up to me after the service was over with and say something to me. 
somebody would come up to me after the service and they would say, you know, I spent the entire service trying to figure out if you were Ken. Ken was the name of that other pastor. And I, of course, would have to tell him, no, I'm not. And then there were times repeatedly when primarily senior adult ladies would come up to me in the hallway and speak to me as if I was him. And they would make some comment about the ministry I was doing or whatever. And eventually I just decided it was easier to accept their compliments and move on rather than try to explain to them that I really wasn't him and they had misidentified me. So Ken would often tell me that I needed to be very careful with how I lived my life. He would say to me, you know, you, you can't go to places that you shouldn't go to. You can't do things that you shouldn't do because I don't want people thinking that's me. So he was afraid that a misapplied or misinformation about my identity would have an impact upon his ministry. And that's why we're doing this series. Because if we have a misconception about our own identity in Christ, it can have seriously damaging effects upon our spiritual life. And that certainly includes our topic today. The fallacies are numerous and broad when it comes to this subject. Now, you know, a fallacy is a misleading idea or an erroneous belief. So as I bring these up, I'm not saying that these are true. I'm saying these are false ideas that people have about what it means when we are firmly held or have eternal security. The first is some people sometimes think that if we're firmly held or we have eternal security, then we are exempt from spiritual danger. Many people wrongly assume that the doctrine means that we will not have any spiritual struggles whatsoever. After all, we are in the hand of God. Jesus says that. And we are firmly held by him and nothing can get to us. And so the false conclusion by some is that we will not have any spiritual struggles. And yet Paul often talks about spiritual danger, doesn't he? Especially in the book of Ephesians, where he says we wrestle not with flesh and blood and therefore we must put on the armor of God. So Paul certainly understood that we are not exempt from spiritual danger and therefore needed to fight this battle. Likewise, Peter warns us that the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. He doesn't say that we will be devoured, but he does say the enemy is going to attempt to devour us. Speaking of Peter, Jesus said to Peter, Satan has asked for permission to sift you as wheat. But Jesus said, but I've prayed for you that you will not fail. We've been learning in our life group book over the past few weeks that likewise, Jesus prays for us. He is our advocate. He is our intercessor. All of which should remind us that we will face spiritual battles rather than somehow thinking we are exempt from them. Similarly, being firmly held does not mean that we're delivered from all suffering. We talked about this last week, and so I'll just mention it briefly. We are not promised that all suffering will cease because we are held by God. Rather, we are actually promised the opposite. We will suffer even as Jesus did. Not in the same way and certainly not to the same degree, but followers of Jesus will face some of the same things he faced. Once again, Paul was certainly well aware of this, and I trust you are as well. So don't fall for this fallacy that because I'm firmly held, I will not have to suffer in this life. Thirdly, being firmly held does not mean total victory over sin, 
so that we no longer sin, nor are we tempted to sin. Surely you know from experience that this can't possibly be the case, and yet there are some denominations that actually teach this. There are some denominations that teach sinless perfection. That is, once you are saved, you will not sin. Now, some of them temper that by saying, well, it's not that you won't sin at all, but it's that you won't do any willful sins. That is, you might commit a sin inadvertently, not on purpose, but you won't do any willful sins, that is, overt acts of rebellion against God. Honestly, don't know how anyone can believe that with a straight face. Because again, we know that from experience. We know we commit inadvertent sins for sure, but we also know that we commit sins knowing full well what we're doing and that it is in fact a sin. So our own experience and biblical examples argue mightily against this. I mean, there are great men in the Bible who commit great sins against that same God, and so do we. So let's not fall for the silly fallacy that being held firmly by God means somehow that we are kept from falling into sin. A final fallacy that I want to mention, and probably the most popular, is that everyone who professes to believe is firmly held. The key word there is profess. And again, I've probably talked about this more than I should over the years, and so I'm not going to spend all day on it. But there are people, perhaps more than we care to admit, who make a profession of faith in Christ. That is, they say they believe, they say they've been saved, and yet they are not. They might pray a prayer. They might follow through on that prayer with being baptized. They might actually be involved in a local body and show some fruit for a limited period of time. But eventually they fall away. If you want a story of that, look at the parable of the soils where Jesus talks about four different kinds of soil upon which the seed of the word of God fell, and only one of those four are actually a genuine believer, but three of the four showed some fruit. So it's possible to pray a prayer and be baptized and demonstrate some fruit and yet fall away. That does not mean that someone has lost their salvation. It is evidence that they never actually had it. And the most blatant form of this comes from those who remember praying a prayer and now they're convinced that they can live any way they want because after all, once saved, always saved. If that's your attitude, I can sin as much as I want because once saved, always saved. Or if that's the attitude of someone you know, then I think they are on very dangerous grounds and it is simply proof that they neither understand salvation nor eternal security. And as a result, they likely possess neither one. Remember what Jesus said in our text, and I told you I was coming back to this. He said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So his definition of those who are the true sheep are not those who make a profession at some past point in their life and yet never hear nor follow after that. His definition is those who hear the voice of God through the word of God and they follow him accordingly. Again, not in perfection. None of us can do that. So if you're not listening and you're not following, I'd be very careful in claiming once saved, always saved because you just might be embracing a fallacy and deceiving yourself. Well, let's turn our attention to the positive side of this. And let's see, lastly, that the scriptures are clear. That is, even if we didn't go to other passages of scripture and we just stayed here in John chapter 10, the scriptures are still very clear. 
And yet again, there are denominations that teach the losing of salvation. And there are people in all denominations, even ours, that don't teach it, that it is possible that they might have lost their salvation. So before we focus in on what's here, I'll briefly mention some other passages without going to them directly. You remember last week we talked about adoption. We talked about being a family heir. We talked about how God has adopted us into his family. And as a result, we are part of his kingdom. And we mentioned that God does not go back to his attorney, nor does he have one. But he doesn't go back to his attorney at any point and change the will. Family members remain family members. We've talked about the fact that we are a holy temple because the spirit of God dwells within us. And Paul says in the book of Ephesians that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance. We've been stamped with the official seal of God, his Holy Spirit, and again, that's not going to change. So now we come back to John chapter 10 where he's telling us several things leading us to the clear conclusion that we are firmly held. First of all, in verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, present tense. He doesn't say I will give, it's not a future promise. In some sense, of course it is, but it's a present tense. So the question then is how long is eternal life? If Jesus says, I give them eternal life, how long is that? And the answer is forever. I mean, by the very definition of the term that Jesus chooses to use, it cannot be revoked, it lasts forever. And when he gives a gift, he does not rescind it, nor take it back. I've told you before that when we gather with Tracy's family for Christmas, her mother uses a line repeatedly when we are opening presents. I mean, virtually every time. And she says it even before you can get through unwrapping the present. And so as I'm unwrapping the present, she will say, now, if you don't like that, you can take it back. And then she might add something to it. I bought that at Target, so you can take it back. Or I kept the gift receipt, so you can take it back. Well, I want you to understand that God doesn't take anything back. When God gives eternal life, it is a done deal. There are no disclaimers. Then he adds the other side of the equation, the fact that if we have eternal life, it means that we will never perish. I mean, that too is a very clear and concise statement that is really not open to multiple interpretations. Now, I realize that you might say, but people do die. People do perish. But Jesus is not promising here that we will never physically die, but he is saying that we will live in spite of physical death. In the next chapter, John chapter 11, there is the famous story of Jesus and the raising of his friend Lazarus, who has died. It is a passage of scripture that I use very often at funerals, particularly the dialogue between Jesus and Martha. And you got to remember that that dialogue takes place before the miracle is performed, so Martha doesn't know what's about to happen. But Martha is talking to Jesus, and she's a bit angry, she's a bit frustrated. Because they had asked Jesus or they had told Jesus that Lazarus was sick and Jesus hadn't come. And so when Jesus finally does so show up, Martha says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. She knows that if Jesus had come, her brother would have been healed. And this is how Jesus responds. Again, you've got your Bibles open. Look at John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, when I read that at a funeral, I often ask, how can Jesus make such a claim while standing at the graveside of a loved one? And then I go on to say, how can I read that verse at the graveside as we are burying someone's loved one? And the answer is because Jesus is making a promise here of eternal life, something that death cannot even take away. And then we see back in John chapter 10, the strength of being firmly held, that it is God who is doing the holding, which is why I said at the very outset that I like the phrase preservation of the saints. It is God who is preserving us rather than us persevering, though of course we do persevere. So God's preservation is the same thing as what I'm saying as being firmly held. And no one is stronger than God. Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. And he says that twice. I'd say that's better than any security system you can come up with. I'd say that's better than any insurance policy you can put in place. Because you are promised as a believer that you are in the firm hands of God, the most powerful being in the world. Now, can I be just honest with you and say the reason many people struggle with, with this is because they misunderstand or don't have a firm grasp on salvation to start with? The reason people struggle with eternal security is because they don't really grasp salvation. That is somehow, deep down, they have a misunderstanding about how God saves, resulting in the fear that they will not be kept. In other words, consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously, they are mixing in some kind of works element to salvation. And if you mix any kind of works element into salvation, it will always lead to the possibility of losing your salvation. After all, if you did something, however minor, to gain your salvation, then it is possible that you can do something, however minor or major, to lose that salvation. Let me just explain this by summarizing what we've been, where we've been in this series and show you how it all builds upon one another. Week one, we said we are image bearers, that God created us, all of us, in the image of God. Now, who did that? God. You had no part to play in that. You were not part of creating yourself. It was God who made you in his image. And then week two, we talked about being a new creation. That is for the believer, God has made us new people. Now again, who did that? The answer is God. You did not recreate yourself. God made you a new creation and God is continuing to form you into the image of his son. And then we talked about you being a holy temple. That is the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. I'm asking the same question. Who did that? God. You didn't put the Holy Spirit within you. You didn't turn yourself into a holy temple. It was God who put the Holy Spirit within you and called you a holy temple. And then last week, last week we talked about a family heir. How did you get into the family of God? You were adopted by God. So I'm asking the same question. Who, who did something to put you in the family? And the answer is still the same. It is God. So the reason I can have confidence that true believers are firmly held is because the scripture is clear that it's not you holding on to God. It is not me firmly grasping God. It is God holding on to us. So if God has done everything else we've talked about in this series, 
then we can trust that God is going to hold us and keep our salvation. And scripture is very clear about all of this. That it is God who orchestrates salvation from start to finish and he will lose no one. Listen to John 6 and verse 39. This is Jesus speaking. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. We struggle sometimes with knowing what the will of God is for our lives. Well, here's an element of the will of God that Jesus makes very plain, and therefore we have no reason to struggle. He says, it is God's will that I lose none of those who come to me. You are firmly held, which means you are firmly held forever. Again, who made the man in chapter 9, blind from birth, able to see? God. Who raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11? God. Who keeps the sheep in chapter 10? It is God. I often strive to drive home the main point of the sermon by trying to say something that I imagine you might remember because it's the last thing I say. But I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm not even going to try. Instead, I'm going to let Jesus drive home the point. Because if you don't believe what he says, then it really doesn't matter what I say. Look again at verses 27 and 28. My sheep, he says, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you not only save us, but your salvation is so complete that you keep us. That no one can take us away from you, not even ourselves. Because you've given us eternal life, which means though we die, yet we will live. I pray that we would understand this wonderful promise not trample upon it as some do and think, well, that means I can live any way I want and that's not what the doctrine means at all. But help us during this week of thanksgiving to be thankful not only that we are saved, but that we are firmly held by the God who has saved us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.